You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geisert and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Smart But Scattered by Peg Dawson and Richard Guare. Let's get into it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Welcome, everybody, back to the SLP Book Club. Today, we are continuing with Smart But Scattered. We're going to be doing chapters six, seven, and eight. So buckle up, lots of content coming your way. <laughs> okay, so let's get started with chapter six, modifying the environment. A is for antecedent. So the chapter starts out with a story about a four-year-old named Jonas who had difficulties with emotional control. He struggled with sensory issues like tags on his clothing and had meltdowns at family parties. His family was able to figure out a schedule for him and they stuck to it as much as they possibly could. They would also arrive late to parties and leave a little bit early. One parent might take him for a walk midway through if possible. And then they also limited his TV time and selected shows that didn't have any violence in them. So Jonas's family used strategies to reduce his emotional outbursts instead of direct efforts to teach him how to manage his emotions. They worked to structure the external factors or the antecedents to reduce the likelihood that he would become overloaded. They understood he was really too young to manage his emotions and instead they structured his day with emphasis on social and physical environment to help his emotions remain under control. Starting with external modifications is so important because it really removes the burden for decision making from the child. So just as the environment was controlled when they were younger, maybe you would put up a baby gate or something to stop them from falling downstairs or enforcing bedtime and restricting screen time. This chapter discusses addressing executive skill weaknesses in pretty much the same way. So you begin by acting as the child's frontal lobes, making decisions and choices for the child. These decisions affect the child's external environment instead of aiming to change the child. And then over time, you'll transfer your efforts so that the child herself becomes the target for intervention by teaching them the specific skills. So this made me think of, you know, I've mentioned many times I don't have kids, but my sister has kids. And when she comes over, I used to forget. I wouldn't modify anything in my house and my house is not set up for kids at all. So many times they would be over and things would get broken because they were just being regular <laughs> kids. And it's like you can either be frustrated or you can recognize ahead of time, hey, these are kids that don't necessarily have control of their bodies or good impulse control. And I'm the adult. I mm. need to set up everything so that they can be successful. Right. And, you know, it also makes me think of back to the whole brain child where you really have to always be thinking, okay, this kid is working with a brain that is still developing and I need to meet them where they're at and make sure that the tasks and the environment match their level. And so we always just need to be thinking of that with everything for kids. Absolutely. They emphasize throughout, you know, you need to pick what's appropriate for the child's age, right? So yeah, when they're young, you're not going to be talking them through things, trying to explain it to them. If they're three, you know, just do what you can, which is control the environment. So Jonas's parents addressed his weak emotional control with the efforts that were just external. And then as he gets older, his parents might begin to talk with him about things that he could do to avoid or cope with upsetting things as they occur. And then this will increase his understanding of his own behavior and allow him to begin to adapt to his environment to meet his own needs. And then he'll also be able to increase his repertoire of self-soothing techniques. You just kind of change as they get older and you adjust it to them depending on where they're at. 
And now we're going to do a deeper dive into changing the physical or social environment to reduce problems. So these changes can take any number of forms depending on the executive skill weakness and the specific problem area. Physical changes might look something like having a child who has trouble with homework because of problems with task initiation, sustained attention, or time management do their homework in the kitchen where there are fewer distractions and increased parental supervision. Maybe a child with organizational problems that ends up leading to a messy bedroom. They might benefit from being provided with bins or containers for toys or limiting the number of toys allowed in the bedroom. For children who are impulsive, access should be restricted to certain situations or equipment that could lead to trouble. And so, for example, if a child throws things in anger, maybe expensive or breakable objects should be kept out of reach. And when I was thinking about the classroom, it's like we need to be looking at each student that has behavioral issues and then trying to tailor as much as we can for them. If you have a child who's easily distracted, you know, you probably want them up at the very front of the room, right in front of the teacher, not sitting next to the chattiest kid in the class. We can just evaluate what each child needs and then see what we can do given the context. Some children also benefit from management of the social environment. For example, for children with weak emotional control, one may want to restrict the number of children coming over to play or the amount of time that the play date lasts. For children who have difficulty with flexibility or impulse control, you might want to arrange for structured social activities like playing organized games or going to the movies which tends to work better than more open-ended play dates. Some examples of other ways that you can modify the physical or social environment are adding physical barriers or making some locations off limits. So this is particularly important for children with response inhibition problems. You may want to consider putting a fence around a yard or gates on the stairs or putting breakable objects out of reach, like you just said, Laura. <laughs> Locking rooms that have dangerous things in them and then taking away the controls to video games. You might want to also consider introducing barriers to technology as a way of managing executive skill problems. So this could include adding parental controls to cable TV or video games. I think they said like the Xbox has a way to set up a certain amount of time played per week and then it will just shut down or block access. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that before. That's cool. I know. I didn't know that either. I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. <laughs> um, you could control a child's use of the computer by using passwords to control access to the internet, using filters to control what websites they visit. And, you know, if they're on social media, you definitely want passwords so that you can be frequently logging in and seeing what they're up to. You can also reduce distractions. If a noisy home environment makes it difficult for a child to complete homework, you can consider creating a quiet time for the household, or maybe the child can use headphones or white noise generators. And, you know, that's also a strategy that could be used in a classroom. The child might be able to wear headphones depending on the teacher and their rules. Check with the teacher and see what you can do. You can provide organizational structure by putting some kind of system in place. These can include like cubbies and coat racks, storage bins for sports equipment and toys, maybe hampers in the bedroom for dirty clothes. This is an example where by prompting children to put their things in the appropriate place, they'll eventually internalize the concept of organization. And I really love this example. They said you could take a picture of the playroom or the bedroom in the exact finished beautiful product, the end result where it's all organized. And then the child can refer back to that photo when trying to compare her work. 
and kind of can serve as a guide. Yeah, I think that that would be a really useful tool in a classroom on the cabinet or on the bookcase to have a picture of what that area should look like when it's all put back and organized. And then when you're having your students clean up, well, does it look like the picture? Yeah, totally. You can reduce the social complexity of an event or activity as well. So children who have problems with emotional control, flexibility, response inhibition tend to struggle in more complex social situations like when there are a lot of people involved or the rules are looser than normal. We can think of this as simplifying in order to keep the number of people down or making the activity more structured. And it's a good idea to have clear rules for social situations and to remind children of the rules before the event begins. So for example, rules for play dates might include play with one toy at a time and take turns, no fighting. By reminding the child and his friend of the rules, you're putting the rules in their working memory so they're more likely to remember them. And you can also change the social mix. I thought this was really important. You may have noticed that a child does better with a certain other child only on a one-on-one basis. And this was making me think of the school setting. Teachers and service providers need to really watch the dynamic in groups. So if you have a small group for speech, you may need to think ahead about how these children work together. And maybe even two children are friends and have a good time on the playground, but Maybe they're too competitive in a small group of four when they're working on a certain task. Um, I can definitely think of kids I've known who seem like really great match, but then you get them in a small group or you're working on speech goals and you're just like, oh my gosh, they trigger each other or it's not working. I always really appreciated in IEPs when a teacher would be like, oh, don't put him with that kid. Oh yeah. 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 They would give you a little bit of guidance and help set you up for success in your speech therapy sessions. Definitely. If it's not possible to do this, like maybe you're going to a family party, you can always front load the child by telling them something like, when I see you get uncomfortable, this is what we can do. Go to another room or this is our option. Next, we're going to talk about changing the nature of the task your child is expected to perform. So oftentimes children with executive skill problems do fine as long as they're the ones deciding how to spend their time. So they'll choose to do things that are fun And then when that gets, you know, boring or done, they move on to the next fun thing. However, children are expected to tackle tasks that are not always very fun, like homework or going to a boring party, family party. So typical children can set aside their own preferences and do something they may not really be happy to do. But kids with executive skill weaknesses have a harder time doing that. And there are some examples of ways to ease the adjustment by modifying the tasks we're asking the child to perform. You can make the task shorter. For children who struggle with task initiation and sustained attention, the end should always be in sight. And you can ask them to do several brief tasks instead of one giant task. If you do assign long tasks, build in frequent breaks. So you can break the task down and have the child just do one part at a time or maybe in 15-minute increments. Give the child something to look forward to when the task is done. In chapter eight, the authors will talk a lot more about incentive systems, but this is a powerful tool to use. And of course, in speech therapy, we tend to put work first and then have a small reward at the end, whether that be like a little game or a sticker for a sticker chart. You also want to make the steps more explicit. So rather than asking a child to do a vague task, like clean the whole room, you can provide them with a checklist to show each individual task. And chapter 10 goes into more of a variety of ways to break down daily routines. So we will be talking about that more later as well. You can create a schedule for the child. So build in set times in the day when things like mealtimes, bedtime, chores, and homework will occur so the child knows what to expect. 
This also helps them internalize a sense of order and routine. And you can build in choice or variety. So you can create a menu of chores or tasks and allow the child to choose which one they want to do. You could also give them the option of when they would like to do the chore. Maybe timing would make a difference to them. You can make the task more appealing. So this could mean allowing the child to listen to music while they do the chore or turning it into a game. Like you could ask them to see if they can finish cleaning the room before the timer goes off, which can be motivating for some kids. Not mine, but some. (laughs) (laughs) Some examples of way to turn chores into games include challenging the child to pick up 10 things in one minute, scheduling a fast clean session like where the child has 15 minutes to tidy up maybe the classroom. I was thinking this could be great for a classroom and then 15 minutes of free play. You can also turn picking up the classroom into a game of musical chairs, start the music, have the children kind of walk around, and then when you stop, they freeze and just pick up anything they can reach. You can also write down chores on pieces of paper and then fold them and put them in a jar, and the child has to select a piece and then do that chore. So there are also things you can do to change the way you or other adults interact with the child. So... You can do things before, during, and after situations that require executive functioning to increase the likelihood that they will know what to do to make the situation go well, either now or in the future. So let's talk about some things you can do before a situation comes up. You can rehearse with the child what will happen and how the child will handle it. So if you know you're going somewhere where the host likes children maybe to clear their own plates off of the table and put them in the sink, you can talk to your child about that in the car on your way over and ask them to repeat it back to you. You can also use verbal prompts or reminders. So this is like a shortened version of a rehearsal. If you say, remember what we talked about, it'll remind the child of the conversation you had when rules were laid down or a situation was previewed. And if you ask a question like, what's the rule for playing in the front yard? Or what do you have to do first as soon as you get home from school? Then you're requiring the child to retrieve information. And by asking them to do that, you're requiring him to begin to use his own executive skills and specifically working memory. So if the child has a hard time remembering, you can give him or her some clues, maybe fill in the blank a little bit. This is about working towards independence, most of all. And you can also arrange for other cues such as visual cues, written reminders, lists, audio taped cues, audio (laughs) maybe recorded on your phone. Yeah, alarms or pager systems. Like there was some talk about beepers in here where I was like, oh, I had to flip flip back and see when this book was written. I was like 2009 and we're still talking about beepers beepers strange (laughs) i have not really heard of a beeper since like 1995 but it's cool they also had an example like you could put a sign on the kitchen table that says please walk the dog before you start playing video games which could help support the child with weak working memory and remind them what needs to be done when they get home from school if the mom isn't there to do it themselves And it's a good idea to try to encourage children to make and use lists, which is something that these kids tend to resist. So these are specifically helpful for children with problems with working memory, task initiation, time management, and planning. And there are some resources in the back of the book regarding like different tech devices on pilots (laughs) or services that can help with this area specifically. Yeah, they all sounded pretty outdated. (laughs) You just never know. I bet there's some cool apps, you know, or something you could look into. Oh, yeah. Well, here are some ideas of things you can do when interacting with your child during an activity or problem situation. 
You can coach the child to elicit the rehearsed behaviors. So this could be saying, remember what we talked about just before the problem's about to come up, and that can make all the difference to a child with weak working memory or impulse control. You could even try to give a child cue cards that they can carry with them to remind them of the skill they're working on or how to carry out that skill. There's an example of what this looks like on page 90 of the book if you are interested in that. Remind the child to check his list or schedule. In the early phases of learning a routine, some children forget not only that there's a procedure, but also that it's been written down. So prompt them to check the list, and that'll help to transfer the responsibility from the parent to the child, instead of just telling them what to do. Monitor the situation to better understand the triggers and other factors that affect the child's ability to use their skills successfully. So even if there's nothing you can do to intervene quickly, you can still observe to try to identify the factors that are contributing to different problems. And I felt like this was really like at the heart of this chapter is watching the child and really analyzing the situation. Maybe if you're in the classroom, if you really watch and see, you can maybe notice your target child that you're watching, their neighbor maybe taps their pencil over and over and over. And that is what's causing the child to lose his temper. So sometimes you have to kind of be open-minded and really more observational. Some things you can do afterwards to improve your child's use of executive skills the next time around include praising the child for using good skills. So an example of this might be something like, I really like the way you started your homework with only one reminder from me, or I was impressed with the way you were able to set aside your video games without complaining when it was time for you to start your chores. You can also debrief, so you can review the situation to see if lessons can be learned and talk about what happened, what worked or didn't work, and what might be done differently next time. This should be done when everyone's calm and after the situation has occurred. So the key thing with this is not to like harp on it every time it happens because the child's going to start feeling defensive and critiqued by you. So if you use it sparingly enough, it can make them feel like, oh, this is a teachable moment, maybe be more effective. Also consult with others involved in the situation. You can ask for feedback from a spouse who observed the event or might be able to offer useful insight into what happened. Maybe you can make a suggestion to a babysitter about how to handle the situation differently next time just to help things go more smoothly. And while these won't require the child to change, right, because we're talking about the environment overall, it will help them to internalize procedures that should help them develop their own executive skills. So depending on how much the child is falling behind, you might want to combine environmental modifications with direct instruction. But in the right circumstances, these can be really helpful. So now we're going to move on to chapter seven, which talks more about those direct instructions. Chapter seven, teaching executive skills directly. B is for behavior. So they have an opening story about Nariko, an eight-year-old girl who's been struggling with dawdling and distractions while trying to get ready for school in the morning. She's a talented artist, so her mom had her draw a picture for each step of her morning routine and then make a chart, divide it in half, two columns, one to do and then the other done. At first, she required a lot of reminders and support from her mom, but eventually she was able to finish on her own. And her mom was nagging much less and actually able to enjoy some coffee in the morning. So it was like a win-win. <laughs> the previous chapters focused on ways to modify the environment, which is often the easiest way to tackle the problems associated with weak executive skills. It has the added bonus being particularly appropriate for younger children, but they're not portable. So you need other modifications that can be utilized in every environment. This alternative is to help children develop better functioning executive skills through direct teaching. There are two ways to do this. You can teach the skills you want the child to have, or 
you can motivate them to practice using the skills they have, but don't use much. In the story about Noriko, her mother used instruction and motivation to help her get through a difficult time of day. So she taught her a set of steps to follow, and then she arranged for a reward, which was television, if she was able to get her morning routine completed in the appropriate amount of time, and that seemed motivating for her. There are two different ways to teach a child executive skills. You can respond naturally and informally to the child's behavior through how you talk to them throughout their life and by using games that encourage the development of various skills. Or you can take a more targeted approach by teaching the child how to manage certain problematic tasks by working on the skills you know they lack. Again, like I just want to preface this and I will talk about this a little bit, but these are all things that we as SLPs are going to be pretty familiar with as far as motivation and scaffolding and teaching. But I'm hoping maybe you'll learn a new trick or two, or we'll see. Scaffolding and games are a great way to sneak in valuable instruction without the child really being aware. The child then receives valuable lessons in developing and using executive skills in a different context than chores and other undesirable activities. And meanwhile, you can work on one or two tasks that are really causing issues for everyone and design a specific intervention for teaching the child to do that job. So now we're going to talk about ways to teach executive skills informally. And again, as speech therapists, we're pretty familiar with the term scaffolding. But in case there are some people who are not familiar with the concept, you know, it basically means providing explanations and guidance and asking questions at an appropriate developmental level for the child. So you're providing like just enough support for the child to be successful. And then ideally, as they learn the skill more and more, you kind of pull back that support until they're independent. So it also allows children to see patterns, make connections, and draw on past knowledge, which helps them to create plans and organizational schemes. And then these skills are also really important for metacognition, where a person uses thought in order to solve problems. So verbal scaffolding is a powerful strategy that can be applied to even the youngest children. You can use it in a variety of contexts over the course of the day, like when getting dressed in the morning, at the dinner table, remarking on things you see while driving to school, maybe while watching TV or just while playing. And this helps children to think about what they do and why, and that helps them with problem solving. So when you explain why something is important, the child is more likely to remember that critical information when they need it. And there's a really great table on page 95 that goes over many different examples of scaffolding categories that can be used with preschoolers. It's pretty thorough, so check it out if you would like more examples and information about how to apply this to younger children. And then here are some examples of ways to use verbal scaffolding to infuse executive skill instructions into activities of daily living. So you could ask and don't tell. An example of this is asking what would happen if I let you stay up as long as you wanted at night. This allows the child to draw their own conclusions and work through it with you. Although they would probably just say like, I would have a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess you could support them and verbally scaffold that explain rather than dictate so it's easy to just respond to a child's question with because I say so but we need to take the time to actually explain why we do these things and ask these things to children so that they can understand and begin to draw their own connections let your child know you understand how she's feeling and why you could say something like oh you're worried that you're going to make a mistake on your speech and everybody will laugh at you and then this helps the child to feel understood and to understand their own feelings better I don't know why you would say that, but maybe it could be helpful in the right scenario. Just put this terrible thought into a kid's head. (laughs) They're like, maybe I am. (laughs) They're like, wait, should I be worried about that? Oh, my God. 
You can also encourage self-appraisal. So you could ask a question like, what do you think you might do differently the next time so your friend doesn't ask to go home early? Just questions that will help them think these things through. And you can also use games to help your child develop executive skills. So again, as speech therapists, we're very familiar with how games support different social skills and executive skills, but they had some great examples. So classic games like checkers and chess require planning, sustained attention, response inhibition, working memory, and metacognition, among others. Even board games like Candyland require attention response inhibition, and goal-directed persistence for young children, while games like Monopoly require planning and working memory. And I do want to say also, like when I'm playing Candyland with my own daughter, you know, games are so important because there are so many response inhibition. It can be so disappointing for little kids to not win. Or like in Candyland, you know, if you get a really great card, like the ice cream, which is all the way near the end, <laughs> I just see like it's so hard for her to, you know, remain emotionally regulated. And sometimes she cheats because I can tell she just like wants that ice cream so bad. Well, yeah. I mean, do you play that if you make it all the way almost to the end and then you get one of those cards with an item on it do you have to go all the way back if it's further back um, because that's tough with a little kid so it does <laughs> say in the instructions that you can <laughs> adapt it so if you're playing with little kids you can throw that rule out I guess you know you can modify okay. as you see fit but yeah because Candyland can be pretty oh you thought you were about to win well now you're back at the beginning yeah it's kind of harsh and also it's cutthroat going on a Candyland tangent okay the addition that I had in my speech room for a long time was like an older version and then I bought a newer one for my home with my daughter and it is like so cheap now I cannot even tell you the paper they make for the cards that they use for the cards is thin. And when there is a pink one, right? So like, oh, sorry to go on this tangent, but it really bothers me. <laughs> if it is a card with a candy on it or like a good spot, right? It has a pink background. And when it's laying on top of the other cards, you can kind of see the pink reflection on top of the back of the other white cards. So it makes it really easy to cheat. Oh, wow. My four-year-old is just unhinged with the cheating. Like, I feel like we can't even play candy. Oh, when I played in the speech room, I held all the cards in my hand. And when it was their turn, I just held them out and let them take the top card. It's like you get what you get and you don't get upset. Yeah, <laughs> in a stack. Yeah, that's maybe I'll just do that at home because... I had a version that was laminated. I think it was like a COVID thing. I laminated each card so we could wipe it. <laughs> anyway, Candyland. I mean, every speech <laughs> therapist will relate. We all have Candyland. Everyone has it. Yes. Oh, my God. Video games can also help build executive skills. So games like The Legend of Zelda and SimCity require sustained attention, response inhibition, planning, organization, metacognition, and goal-directed persistence. So just remember to use discretion when picking out a video game and make sure if it's appropriate for the child's age and maturity. Teaching executive skills in the course of family activities is also a good idea. So you can use real-world family Things like meal planning, cooking, grocery shopping, uh, vacation planning, and banking. Talk about motivating. Bank. Well, when I was a kid, we in third grade, we had something where we had in school little checkbooks and we had to like learn to write a check. And it was really motivating. Of course, that doesn't really apply. We don't use a lot of checks now. 
but Fresno, <laughs> Fresno Public Schools. Like <laughs> we had to buy things and manage money. We had a certain amount of money, and I forget, but it was like cool. really fun because we got to act like adults. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I love that. It's a great way to make that motivating. Well, sorry for talking badly about you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that shows me. And these activities can be really great teaching tools because they do have built-in incentives, like what you're saying. You get to feel more like an adult or you get to eat what you cook. And they offer options for participation and feeling independent. There are some considerations to keep in mind so that these activities can be effective in promoting executive skills. You have to be an active and available participant in order to model the skills, ask key questions, and encourage the child. You need to have a good frontal lobe so you can be in charge. You don't want to be teaching the child something where you're not organized and you don't know what's going on. The child must have some legitimate choices and decision-making power in the activity. So make sure you actually cook the recipe that your child helps grocery shop for so that they feel motivated and want to participate in the future. Be prepared to accurately gauge your child's interest, attention span, and endurance and provide enough support so that the child is successful and appreciated for whatever job she does. Make sure to pick a time when the child can be really engaged and make sure to acknowledge their participation to whoever is around. The authors offer an instructional sequence that can be used for teaching all kinds of behaviors. Step one, identify the problem behavior you want to work on. The more frustrated you are with the child, the more likely you are to refer to their problem behaviors globally instead of specifically. So a concrete example of this would be something like they leave their personal belongings all over the house. This will help you identify exactly what you're going to teach. Step two, set a goal. The goal should be a positive restatement of the problem behavior. For example, instead of saying leaves personal belongings all over the house, you could say takes personal belongings out of the living room before going to bed. So that's really actionable and specific. And you can also try to enlist the child to help you come up with a goal by gently bringing up the problem behavior to them and then maybe asking them, do you want to help me work on a plan? to fix this. You can also set interim goals, which is slowly working up to the big goal. So first you need to measure the current behavior, which can be done. Actually, they have a lot of really great examples for how you might want to measure a behavior. You can time them and see how long it takes between the time a child says she'll start something and the time she actually starts. You can time how long something lasts, counting the number of times the behavior occurs, counting the numbers of reminders you need to give your child before she does what you ask her to do, and creating a five-point scale and braiding the severity of the problem behavior. These kinds of baseline data are often useful. You can display the results visually and it'll also help you to track progress. I want to look up that book, The Incredible Five-Point Scale that they mentioned. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm going to look it up on Amazon. What exciting <laughs> possibilities. Report back. Tell us how it is. <laughs> Step three, outline the steps the child needs to follow to reach the goals. So some goals lend themselves easily to creating a step-by-step -step list, while others are a little more challenging. But part three of the book is going to go over this in more detail, so stay tuned. Step four, turn the steps into a list, a checklist, or a short set of rules to be followed. This forces you to think clearly about the skill you're trying to teach and then creates a permanent record of the instructional sequence so that you and the child can refer to it. The child also has the satisfaction of checking things off and recording progress toward a goal. Checking things off a list is really an immediate reinforcer, so try to do that when you can, and it also supports accountability. Examples of this are picture schedules like the one Noriko from the beginning of the chapter used, or a checklist. If the child's older, you can enlist them to talk you through how they feel when trying to perform a task. The example in the book was of Todd 
a 12-year-old who had frequent meltdowns when he encountered an obstacle during his homework. His dad talked to him when he was calm. He practiced a lot of reflective listening and then worked with Todd to figure out a solution. Step five, supervise the child following the procedure. The authors recommend beginning this step by holding a practice session or dry run. Then you can provide more supervision as the child becomes more familiar with the process. Depending on the age of the child and how on board they are with this, you may need to work hard to engage them with humor or in a way that you know they like to be interacted with. And then step six is to fade the supervision. The authors use an example of Molly, a seventh grader whose new school has a significantly heavier homework load than her old school. So her mother devised a plan with her to support her with this homework completion. Molly and her mom had created a form for her to use after checking the school website for her homework. At first, her mom helped her fill in the form and prompted her to use it when she got home from school. And then the next step, she was able to use the form herself with a check-in with her mom at the beginning and a checkout at the end. And then she only needed prompts to use the form in the beginning. And eventually she was able to use their form independently without any prompts at all. So you can consider what the process looks like when thinking of teaching a child how to clean their room. That's like a really good example. So in the beginning, the adult needs to act as the child's frontal lobes by providing a plan, a specific set of directions, monitor performance, provide encouragement and feedback about the success of the approach, problem solve when something doesn't work and determine when the task is complete. So in stage one, parents are really involved and might say things like, okay, let's start now or put your books on the bookshelf. Maybe when you finish, you can play with your friends, things like that. And then during stage two, parents provide the same information by helping to create a list or a picture schedule. During stage three, parents step back a little more and they may say something like, what do you need to do next? Or practice asking rather than telling. And then during stage four, the transfer is now complete and the child should be asking themselves, what do I need to do? And they said that might not happen until the child's like a teen or a young adult, but it might take a while for the child to internalize that kind of process. So at the end of the chapter, they have two helpful like templates, a blank checklist and a daily homework planner. You can use that with your own students or adapt it in any way that suits your specific situation. It's good to remember that a lot of these things that come naturally to us as speech therapists, you know, we're very good at scaffolding and already use these things a lot especially visual reminders, picture charts, things like that. So hopefully this information will just kind of help you to think of teaching executive skills in a more concrete and regimented way. Like maybe there were some tips in here that you hadn't thought of before, or maybe just helped you look at things differently instead of just getting frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to give an update on the book. Yeah. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I looked up the incredible five point scale and I feel like speech therapists listening are going to think we're total amateurs. I feel it. I, have you seen this book before? Okay. I have not seen the book, but I've seen that scale. Like that looks really familiar to me. <laughs> I've seen that scale too. And people say that they use it with teens on the autism spectrum. Some people said they used it with like four-year-olds. One person specifically says this book was recommended to me by a speech therapist. So this is a possible book club book because it looks really great. It's called The Incredible Five Point Scale, Assisting Students in Understanding Social Interactions and Managing Their Emotional Responses. I'm into it. So I feel like it's a strategy that could be used with all your speech therapy kids. Across the whole caseload. I'm going to look more into it. I'll put it on our book club list for possible books. <laughs> yeah, do that. So now we're going to talk about chapter eight, 
motivating your child to learn and use executive skills. C is for consequence. So this is all about motivation. The chapter opens up with three different stories. The first story is about a three-year-old named Melissa whose parents work with her to help her pick up the playroom as part of her bedtime routine. So as they work, her parents use words of encouragement to keep her going and praise her for helping. And at the end, she seems to be paying attention because she says things like, I'm a hard worker, aren't I, Patty? So shows that she's listening and integrating what they're telling her. I wanted to say it's really amazing how well praise, just simple praise works with really young kids. I think when you work in elementary school, you get kind of, you get into this mindset where you're like, oh, I have to have all these bells and whistles to keep kids motivated. But at the preschool level, three and four-year-olds, you give them praise. And I work only with stuttering. And it's pretty much the basis for the Lidcombe program. And you see them start to do exactly what that little girl did so quickly. Because after just a couple sessions, they start going, ooh, did I use my smooth speech? You know, they start noticing and asking you if you if you didn't comment on their smooth speech, they ask you for the praise or for validation. So, you know... We just need to keep things really simple when kids are young because all they want is attention and praise and affection and to know that they're doing a good job. And that's it. Yeah, they talk about that. They talk a lot about motivation and praise in general. So the next story is about Raj, age nine, who really likes video games. He loves to play them, but his parents are concerned about the amount of time he is spending with them and how it's impacting the amount of exercise that he gets. So together they agree on a new rule that he will play video games for only an hour a day and he can't play unless he's had some active outdoor time. And then they threw in a little thing about how he found a video game that incorporates exercise, which I thought was fun. And also I've never heard of anything like that. <laughs> well, probably the Nintendo Wii. Oh, the Wii. Where you're swinging. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, and then the next story is about Logan, a 13-year-old who's been asking his parents for a really expensive snowboard to be a competitive snowboarder. And they're concerned, though, that he's becoming an indifferent student despite being bright and having college aspirations. So together they make an agreement that he's going to shoot for grades of a B- minus or better on tests and quizzes. And they work out a plan for him to earn points depending on the grade he gets. So if he can earn 300 points by Christmas, they agree to buy him the snowboard that he wants. And what all of these stories have in common is that they depict different ways that you can use motivational strategies to help your child develop executive skills. So with Melissa, it was pretty simple, just kind of praise and remembering to say something positive about her behavior. In the case of Raj, it was about ensuring that he did the have to before getting to do the want to. And in the case of Logan, it shows that motivational strategies sometimes need to be a little more complicated, requiring more of a careful plan and monitoring. So motivation is good to focus on because it is encouraging, whereas punishment or penalties serve only to tell children what not to do. And they can also kind of damage the relationship between parents and children since the focus is so negative. It's good to remember to praise the child when you notice them performing the skill you've been working on. So praise is one of the most underappreciated and underused tools for promoting behavior change that adults have at their disposal. So it's really easy. You just kind of have to remember to do it. And behavior specialists tend to recommend that for every corrective statement you issue towards a child, you should counter it with three statements of praise. A good rule of thumb yeah. for everyone to remember. I wanted to go back just a tad when you were talking about not using punishment and kind of damaging the relationship. That whole paragraph on page 111 was really important 
especially for people that work in a school, because we all have been in a classroom and seen those behavior charts that the teachers move the little <laughs> clothespins up and down with their names. And the bottom, our special little speech guys, our little troublemakers are always down on the red one with the big sad mm. face. <laughs> and there are smart but scattered kids. They're out of their seat. Yeah, And when they yeah. spend all their time down on the red and they're not getting whatever rewards the teachers are giving, they just, mm. they come to that realization. They have nothing to lose. They keep misbehaving and they quickly realize there's not really, there's no real consequence. They might be getting a lot of attention mm. for being bad. And I have a teacher friend who I know listens to the podcast who taught me those do not work. You have to only reward only praise so her system was you would just start it everyone started at the bottom of the thing every morning and you would move up and up and up towards and she would have like a picture of a goldfish or a picture of a sour patch kid at the top when you reach the top you got one this was preschool one goldfish cracker or one sour patch kid and then you just moved back to the bottom yeah. so every time you did something good you moved up you never moved down you only moved up towards something good. So it was just always this praise. And it was a good system that I started using in speech. They would work for fruit <laughs> snacks. So you got to the top, fruit snack, keep going. You're never moving down. You're not saying, oh, you're doing that bad. You're moving cool. down. It's just always that positive. I love that. Yeah. Those charts wow. that teachers all use are going to work for what? 75% of your class. Yeah. But for the kids you really are trying to target the behaviors in, they're not very effective. Yeah. I'll, I'll stop lecturing, wow. but I love it that. just really stood out to me. No, it's a really good point. Okay. Anybody who felt really moved by that, feel free to integrate <laughs> that into your speech sessions. <laughs> Well, they had a great part on page 112 talking about what effective praise is. So they say that effective praise is delivered immediately after the positive behavior occurs, specifies the particulars of the accomplishment. So it says something like, thank you for picking up your toys right after I asked you. It provides information to the child about the value of the accomplishment. Like when you get ready for school quickly, it makes the morning go so smoothly. It lets the child know that he or she worked hard to accomplish the task. So you could say, I saw you really trying to control your temper. And it orients the child to better appreciate her own task-related behavior and think about problem solving. So you could say something like, I like the way you thought about that and figured out a good solution to the problem. And after praise, the best motivator is to give the child something to look forward to after using the desired skill or completing the skill sequence. So having something to look forward to can kindle a positive drive state. <laughs> I really like that. There was even in italics. <laughs> Kindle a positive drive state that helps combat any negative thoughts or feelings we might have about the task in front of us. So you should also remember to word incentives as positives rather than negatives. So instead of saying something like you can't play video games until you pick up your bedroom, you can instead say when your bedroom's cleaned up, you can play video games. A small shift in wording, but you can tell how it really changes the vibe of the statement. The authors recommend the following formal incentive system. Step one, describe the problem behavior and set a goal. So you might say something like, Joe will complete daily chores without reminders before 4.30 in the afternoon. Step two, decide on possible rewards and contingencies. You want to build a schedule so that less preferred tasks always precede more preferred tasks. Again, grandma's law right? You do the thing, then you get the cookie. <laughs> they recommend having goal behaviors be worth points. So just like that example about Logan who wanted the snowboard, you know, his grades were worth points. You can create a menu of rewards that include larger, more expensive rewards. 
and then smaller, more inexpensive rewards that can be earned daily. These rewards can be material reinforcers like a favorite food or toy, as well as activity rewards like playing a game with a parent. And the authors recommend this strategy in the classroom where classroom behaviors can result in points that can be traded in for a home reward. And this encourages communication and coordination between school and home. And I wanted to say, you know, I had one student on my caseload who was oppositional, defiant. We had a lot of problems with his behavior at school. And the mom was really on board. So this was a case of a teacher and I wrote home daily reports to her. And she was in charge of doling out the reward or not. And I felt like it helped to keep everybody on the same page about what had gone on at school. So there was no surprises or she was never in the dark about anything. And it helped us all to work together as a team. I really like that. I love that. I also wanted to talk about how this has been successful in my own life. (laughs) I got this amazing book from the library. We were having a lot of problems with my daughter at bedtime delay tactics. They call it callbacks. So I forget the name of the sleep book. I have to, I'll look it up, but it was amazing. And it talked about this concept of bedtime tickets. So we created them with her, like cut them out of cardboard and she decorated them with stickers and she gets two bedtime tickets a night. So they can only be used within five minutes of her going to bed and she can trade them in for anything. So before we used the system, it was horrible. Like I felt like bedtime went on and on and on 730 to 930. We were going up and down the stairs and she was just like, I need another hug. I need another kiss. I need a snack. I hurt my elbow and we're bringing like, you know, an ice pack. Like it was just, I need to be tucked in forever and ever and ever. (laughs) And once we did this, we explained it to her and it was like, it worked so well. So it's like you get two bedtime tickets. You can trade them in if you need another kiss, if you need a tuck. And once they're gone, they're gone. And then it sort of doesn't make you the bad guy. It's just like there's no more tickets. You know, this is the, the universe. (laughs) Yeah. And then if she didn't want to use them, she could trade them in for something. So like if she had two from the night before, the next day she could get a little treat or she could like store them up. And if she, you know, saved one a night or we set the number 15 saved bedtime tickets could equal, you know, a trip to the ice cream shop or the trampoline park, you know, something really fun. Oh my gosh. And it worked like magic. (laughs) <laughs> this is yeah this is genius yeah wow <laughs> i know i'll find out the name of the book because i highly recommend it okay step three write a behavior contract the contract should say exactly what the child agrees to do and exactly what the parent's role and responsibilities will be so avoid including penalties that you as the adult are either unable or unwilling to impose and there's also an example behavior contract on page 115 if you want to look at that further. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever used that strategy, but I've had to do a behavior contract with one of my students before and we wrote it up together. I was just having, he was a really challenging kid. I was having a lot of trouble keeping him on task in speech. As soon as he would start doing anything like a more preferred activity, he would not go back to working at all and or he just wouldn't work the whole time and so we had to you know write up a contract we both signed it I would break it out (laughs) if 
Mm-hmm. If, but it was really effective. And some of those, some kids on your caseload, you have to give a little extra, you know, you can't just use the standard system that you have yeah. in place for your other kids. You have to be really creative. And I think a behavior contract, he was older, maybe fourth or fifth grade. So he was able to, you know, cognitively, it made sense to him. We made the deal and it really, really worked. I definitely have heard RSP teachers and other support people talk about behavior contracts, but I've never used one in speech. So it's really encouraging to hear that that was effective. Mm-hmm. Step four, evaluate the process and make changes if necessary. So it's really rare for an incentive system to work perfectly on the first go. And you might need to kind of tinker with certain things like point values or rewards. Parents often ask how they can develop this kind of system for one child in the family and not all the children, because it might seem like you're just rewarding one child, the one with the problems, right, while neglecting those without it's easy to see how this could apply to one child in a classroom as well, right? All the kids are like, why does he get this reward, you know? But they found that most children are understanding of the process if it's really explained to them well. So you might just have to take the time to explain to everybody and be kind of careful with how you word things. But that's it for motivation. So now everybody should kind of have an understanding of the three broad approaches to managing a child's executive skill weaknesses. So coming up, the authors will move from the big picture to practical applications. And there's going to be teaching routines and example stories about how to solve an array of problems that will come up in daily living with children who have less than perfect executive skills. And I also just wanted to include that at the end of this chapter, there's blank incentive planning sheets as well as a blank behavior contract if you want to check those out for ideas or use them as a template. Okay, well, I want to say thank you to everybody for listening in and sticking with us. Smart but scattered, chapter six through eight, lots of great stuff. Stay tuned for more from this book, and we hope you're really utilizing a lot of these strategies and thinking of a lot of ways to use it with your caseloads or your children. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP Book Club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? We've made all the resources for this book, including chapter summaries and visuals, available for free on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the SLP Book Club to download these great materials. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to the SLPbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the SLPbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at SLP underscore book club. Find us on TikTok at the SLP Book Club. 